Sir Valpern, the team of the brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. It's his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball, in particular, of note, this week, a pair of trades by uh, the Atlanta Baseball Club. They send first uh, Tommy LaStella to the Chicago Cubs in exchange for Aradis Vizcaino and international bonus slots, some international bonus slots. They also send Jason Hayward, perhaps more notably, they send Jason Hayward to the St. Louis Cardinals in exchange for Shelby Miller, two other players involved in that deal. And Dave Cameron provides a helpful thought exercise uh, for understanding that deal. Maybe the easiest way to think about it would be if the if the situation was flipped, right? So if the Braves already had Shelby Miller and Tyrell Jenkins, and they were you know projected as a 77 win team, and Jason Hayward was available as a rental player, would we suggest that they give up you know four years of team control and another pitching prospect in order to try and improve themselves up to 81 wins? Probably not. Also discussed the signing by the Toronto Blue Jays of Russell Martin, who will be in his mid and or late 30s by the end of that contract. Is that too old for a catcher? Dave Cameron addresses that specific question in what follows as well. What is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Dave Cameron, the managing editor of Fangraphs. And when does it begin? Right now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, better than yesterday. Mm, about the same. Mm. Just cold. Yeah, I have a cold. Mm. Well, sorry to hear that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, hope you get through it uh, and feel better. <laughs> uh, I'm sure I will, unless I die. Yeah. Well, I guess you get those, two. Those are the two options. Yeah. It's a binary relationship, yeah. isn't it? All right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you want Do you want to talk about um, I want to talk about other things. I want to talk about the well. There's a lot to say with regard to Jason Hayward. Yeah, there is. Um, yeah. I, I, uh, to to begin that though, because the Jason Hayward move does not appear to be the first one. It's significant um, because of the the return on it, and it also seems like there are other uh, there might be other moves going on in Atlanta. But a question I want to ask, and of course uh, that same Atlanta team just traded Tommy Lastella who's not a star, but it was a move that that did something and also left second base a little bit open. But the thing I want to start maybe uh, to provide some sort of foundation for this conversation is to talk about the Atlanta front office. Uh, we've met, we've, uh, I think we probably mentioned it when there was turnover, um, when Frank Wren left, is that right, or was fired? Wasn't yeah, he, he was fired, yeah. He was fired, yeah. yeah. Uh, what has happened since then? Uh, what, what has been the turnover in the Atlanta organization, and what are the implications uh, that that, that, that uh, turnover has for, you know, what we expect from the team? Well, John Hart was with the organization last year in kind of a consulting role, uh, where he and John Scherholtz kind of helped uh, oversee things a little bit, but with a hands-off uh, approach. And now it is very much hands-on, where he was named, I think, the president of baseball operations or some title along those lines. Uh, and he's now in charge, basically acting as the de facto general manager. They don't actually have a general manager at the moment. Um, but Hart's, you know, essentially the GM. And then John Copalella, who's been their assistant GM for the last several years, 
uh, is kind of the GM in waiting, where Hart doesn't want to do this forever, and so they're grooming Kovalela to work uh, as their future GM, but they weren't ready to give him the job quite yet. Uh, so they put Hart in charge, and, and Kovalela is his number two. Um, but for all intents and purposes, John Hart's the guy making the decisions. Okay. And what what do we know about John Hart as a person who makes decisions? Well, he was really good in Cleveland in the mid-'90s. Uh, he built the, kind of the Carlos Berger, Albert Bell, Kenny Lofton teams and kind of pioneered the – uh, long-term contract for arbitration-eligible players and kind of locking up your guys early, uh, and then, you know, built kind of the front office model that uh, led to a lot of other general manager candidates coming out through their internship program and kind of come up through their system. So the John Hart general manager tree has a lot of branches to it, um, and I think he's fairly well-respected in the game. He's, you know, worked for MLB Network and done a bunch of uh, non non-baseball uh, or at least not inside baseball things, uh, and seems to have a, a decent relationship with most people he's worked with. Um, in terms of, you know, probably not the most cutting edge guy in terms of analytics, but was 20 years ago, uh, and certainly is not adverse to them. So uh, probably pushes Atlanta a little bit more into the sabermetric angle than they were previously, but they're still very much a scouting and development uh, organization. They brought in a, a lot of guys who um, kind of are experts in that uh, format, and I think they're you know they're always going to be the Atlanta Braves, and that their their priorities are going to be scouting and finding talent and developing pitching, and these are kind of the kinds of the pillars of their organization that they're going to try and uphold. Okay, right. And then Copalella, uh, he's younger, yes, and I uh, it would seem to me that that would well, I, I guess it doesn't have to be the case, but does he have a more a progressive viewpoint as far as uh, analytics go, or does, it, or does he bring something else um, that I'm not sort of <coughs> mentioning? Uh, well, he's, I think, mid-30s, uh, so he's not necessarily like a you know young Ivy League guy. Uh, he uh, worked for the Yankees previously, um, has been with the Braves for a while now. You know, I know John a little bit, uh, so, you know, uh, as a personal, my personal experience with him <laughs> has been that he's a very smart guy, uh, certainly uh, aware of fan graphs, you know, his... Uh, uh, reads the site, you know, is is not um, ignorant of kind of the sabermetric thinking and and ideas and valuations. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he has his own ideas. Uh, he really likes pitching a lot. Uh, it's not a surprise to me at all that they went out and traded for a guy like Shelby Miller. Uh, in in all my conversations with with John, he's uh, always had an affinity for young pitching, and I would expect that uh, with his voice gaining prominence, the Braves will uh, probably like pitching more than most organizations. Right, and what what do we think that mean in terms of? I mean, this Hayward, this so we should say that the Atlanta traded. Uh, what what was the deal? J- Jason Hayward for Shelby Miller straight up with the Cardinals. No, no, Jordan Walden and Tyrell Jenkins were in the deal as well. So the Cardinals uh, get two years of a pretty good reliever and throw in another power pitching prospect arm who probably uh, has several years of development ahead of him. Okay. Now, the one thing with regard to the Hayward Miller trade that I think might be difficult um, for you know, unless you're going through it, combing through it, uh, because Hayward <clears throat> Hayward does not have a he's not uh, cost controlled for much longer. Uh, he's under team control for one more year, and then he's a free agent for one more year, right? Uh, whereas on the other hand, we have uh, we have Shelby Miller, who I think is what it must be something like three four, or four, four four years. It's one more pre arb year, and then it's three arbitration years. Okay, so so if you say well, um, and I don't know if we want to say that Walden and Jenkins are a wash, um, 
but they don't they don't they're not the the brand names that are uh, that are involved in this trade it's it's a question it seems to me where you have to think beyond just the quality of the players in and of themselves uh, in particular i think cuz cuz Jason Hayward has uh, recorded some uh, pretty excellent seasons at least in terms of uh, wins um of late, whereas if I'm not mistaken, what Shelby Miller had a, a tough 2014 after acquitting himself pretty nicely as a as a rookie the year before. Yeah, he had a really terrible first half, especially uh, the second half numbers got a lot better, uh, especially his results numbers. Uh, his first half he was miserable. I think his walk strikeout ratio was around one, uh, which is not good, especially in National League in 2014, mm-hmm. uh, when, when teams are, or the average pitcher is striking out 20% of the batters they're facing. Miller was down around 14, 15%. Uh, it went up a little bit in the second half. He did improve. He pitched better down the stretch. Uh, but overall, his numbers really took, took a step the wrong way. And I don't think it's unfair to say that this is the Cardinals, this trade is the Cardinals saying that they, do not believe in Shelby Miller. I think if they thought that Miller was, uh, you know, even likely to get back to what he was previously, not, not no one's a guarantee certainly with any young arm, but if they thought Shelby Miller was going to turn back into an above average starting pitcher, which is what he was projected as as a prospect, and he was pretty good his first year, uh, if they thought he was going to be that again, they would not have traded four years of Shelby Miller uh, for one year of Jason Hayward. I think this is, uh, you know, a pretty decent sign that the Cardinals think that last year's problems were probably uh, at least difficult to fix and it won't be just an easy tweak where he maybe moves to one side of the rubber or the other or just changes his uh, repertoire. He, he is a two-pitch guy. There's a lot of fastballs. Um, you know, I think the, the curveball is sometimes good, sometimes not. So when you look at, you know, a guy with spotty command of two pitches, doesn't have a good changeup, uh, there's some chance that Miller could end up as a reliever. We could be talking about four years of Shelby Miller, maybe the two or three of them as a rotation guy, and then by the end, you know, if things don't go well and he kind of follows the Jeremy Hellickson career path, uh, maybe he's a reliever by the year four. And so, uh, you know, I think that that's kind of what the Cardinals are signaling, that they at least think there's a decent chance of happening with Miller. Yeah, interesting that you invoke Jeremy Hellickson. Of course, Hellickson not only recently traded, but also uh, with similar pro- with a similar profile in terms of um, at least a couple of years of Jeremy Hellickson, where he prevented runs at a much greater rate than uh, his fielding independent numbers would have suggested. Yeah, I think uh, Miller and Hellickson have some similarities, and they're both fly ball guys. They're both primarily fastball guys who pitch up in the zone. Uh, and I think, you know, we have seen, as I, I think I referenced in the post, Matt Cain is a kind of the, the golden child of this skill set. If you want to be a <clears throat> a primarily fastball pitcher who, uh, you know, doesn't give up very many hits and doesn't give up a lot of home runs, or at least relative to the amount of fly balls you give up, you can outperform your fielding independent numbers by a pretty good margin. Uh, you know, Kane has had a very nice career, at least before he got injured, uh, despite peripherals that thought he was something closer to an average pitcher. Miller uh, and Hellickson both have worse peripherals, and neither one is as good as Kane, uh, and they don't have the track record that, that Kane put up of doing it for a long period of time. Uh, but I think there is a blueprint for where this kind of pitcher can be a, a quality number three starter, a middle rotation guy. Uh, it's hard to be an ace if you don't strike a lot of batters out, but if you, you, you know, you can certainly be a, a 200 inning guy. Uh, but I think, you know, with the Cardinals trading Miller away, uh, my guess is that they think that just, that adjustment or, or that ceiling for Miller might be more difficult to reach than, than just saying, okay, well, Shelby Miller throws already, throws a lot of high fastballs, he induces weak contact, therefore his, FIP and XFIP don't matter. Well, it, it's interesting, too, you, you mentioned that the, this, to some degree, 
suggest that the Cardinals have given up on Shelby Miller or at least Shelby Miller. Um, if four years of Shelby Miller <coughs> being as valuable as even one year of Jason Hayward. Uh, I feel like we've seen before a case where a pitcher is traded away from a team, and I mentioned pitchers in particular because their health is always so such a um, an important concern. Uh, the team that's doing the, that's trading away any player know, is going to know more about that player than the team that's receiving the player. Right. I think uh, this was basically the argument for the Doug Fister trade last winter is that you know because the Tigers got pennies on the dollar for what it looked like Doug Fister should have returned that the counter argument was. Uh, that the Tigers knew something about Doug Fister. He was either hurt or, you know, he was not as good as his numbers looked or, you know, they had some kind of inside information that the Nationals and everyone else in baseball didn't have. I think, uh, you know, Fister ended up on the disabled list to start the year and that kind of, uh, even cemented their, the, the theory further. And then his strikeout rate did go down significantly even after moving to the National League. Uh, but I think overall his season was pr- pretty excellent and the Tigers probably regret that trade. Uh, so it's a little bit of a dangerous game to play in that, uh, you know, teams do know more than, than teams who don't have the player and, you know, they do have some inside information. How much of an advantage that is and in which cases, we don't really know. Right. And, and so how do you go about assessing the, the values associated with this trade? This four years of Shelby Miller versus one year Jason Hayward. How, how do you go about assessing the, the, the benefits that either of them or both of them are, you know, capable of producing? Well, I think for the Braves, uh, it's, you know, a, a more simple com, uh, calculation is that, you know, they probably don't think they're going to win in 2015. The Jason Hayward trade is probably not their last deal. It wouldn't be surprising at all if Justin Upton was also traded. Uh, and this is a rebuilding year for them. They're, they're going to take a year off from trying to contend. And, uh, <clears throat> so even if you look at it and say, we think maybe one year of Hayward is more valuable than four of Miller, the one year of Hayward is is not that valuable to the Braves and that they're not trying to win this year. So they're essentially exchanging present value for future value, which if you're a rebuilding team is what you want to do. Uh, so I think, you know, for the Braves, this is not necessarily a no-brainer and that some people think maybe they should have gotten more in return. Uh, but the, the concept, or at least the type of trade, uh, makes a lot of sense. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, you would assume that the Braves probably shopped Hayward around and this is probably the best they offer they felt they were they could have gotten. Um, so from their perspective, a fairly easy calculation. St. Louis is a little trickier because it involves a, involves some assumptions about uh, whether they can resign him, what he's going to cost to be resigned, uh, you know, are they valuing the qualifying offer, uh, what's kind of the the one year uh, value uh, is easier to calculate, but the you know value above and beyond the exclusive negotiating rights, maybe the chance to get him at a discount, that stuff is a little bit more nebulous. You mentioned that um, it's a rebuilding year for Atlanta, or might be a rebuilding year for Atlanta. Uh, I know that you have had and still do have a sort of constantly evolving notion of um, how teams ought to conduct themselves given where they are. Um, on this sort of sliding scale of wins. Um, and I'm wondering if, you know, and of course I think that you revised that notion very recently with the success of Kansas City, um, with the caveat, obviously, that, that Kansas City only made it to the World Series because of, you know, some hijinks that occurred at the end of a wild card game. But I'm curious as to, you know, from what you know or what, what your current thoughts are on a team going for it or not going for it or at least trying to um, be on the sort of the better side of mediocrity 
do you think it's it appears to be the wisest decision right now for Atlanta to rebuild? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you can make arguments both directions. The Braves don't look like a very good team in 2015, uh, and the Nationals do look like a really good team in 2015. So I think from one angle, you could argue that, like, the best case scenario for the Braves is probably a run at second place. Uh, and, you know, maybe battling the Mets and Marlins kind of around 500 and hoping, you know, they're the team that uh, overperforms, has a bunch of good seasons, everyone stays healthy, maybe they win 88, 89 games. Uh, if you're one of three teams in that division kind of fighting for that spot and you think that, you know, the Nationals are 10, 15 games better than you, you can make a pretty good case that, you know, trading for future value, especially uh, if you have a significant piece like Hayward, uh, probably makes sense. I think if the way, maybe the easiest way to think about it would be if the, if the situation was flipped, right? So if the Braves already had Shelby Miller and Tyrell Jenkins and they were, you know, projected as a 77 win team or 76 win team, whatever they're looking at like right now, and Jason Hayward was available as a rental player, would we suggest that they give up, you know, four years of team control and another pitching prospect in order to try and improve themselves up to 81 wins? Probably not. Uh, and I think from that perspective, you can say, okay, this is probably the right move for the Braves. Uh, but I do think, you know, the Nationals are uh, not impenetrable, right? Like, they're not a 150-win team who has no chance of, uh, you know, getting injured and playing poorly. And someone uh, in the National League East is going to have to make some kind of run <coughs> trying to finish second in that division because there is, you know, I don't know, 10, 15, 20% chance that the Nationals could have a disaster season where everybody gets hurt, uh, guys underperform, they win 80 games, and all of a sudden the division is up for grabs. Right, and it's uh, it would seem that with the exodus... Wait, is it an exodus? I guess it's an exodus. The departure of Jason Hayward, their chances uh, of winning, they they will likely win fewer games this next year than they they will they will now. Yeah, I think an exodus kind of uh, suggests there's a, a choice in the matter, like you you exit oh, yeah. the exit of your own. Mm-hmm. I think this is more of a deportation. Maybe. Are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> He's been deported. He's yeah. He did not defect, though, so far as we know. No, he got shipped uh, <laughs> via cargo to St. Louis. Yeah, we see that sometimes. Uh, no, you mentioned uh, it, it was probably, um, it was you know, obviously uh, Atlanta and uh, the Atlanta front office were not just talking with St. Louis. They probably presented this case to, uh, you know, Jason Hayward and his avail- availability to a number of teams. Those teams would have had to consider um, – Jason Hayward and how good he was. You wrote you wrote a piece, I think was it today, right? Uh, estimating the next Jason Hayward contract. Yep. And I I am always a bit startled when I see well first when I see Hayward's numbers from recent years, especially relative to what he was I think supposed to be as a prospect. Uh he's still quite good but in a different way it seems. And then all his comparables are not at all the people that I would have expected. They're sort of all Smaller, speedier guys, with the exception maybe of Carlos Beltran, but Carl Crawford, Ichiro Suzuki, and Jacoby Ellsbury. Um, I mean, while they have had they have had certainly excellent seasons with the bat, they're known as uh, among the fastest players in the game. And um, I guess simply because he's played so much corner outfield, I don't think of Jason Hayward like that. Yeah, I think that's one of the tricky things about Hayward and, and kind of the pushback against the post today is 
people looked at those guys and said, well, those guys are fast. Teams are paying for steals, where I don't think there's actually a lot of evidence that teams will pay a premium for steals in free agency. Uh, and Hayward is a six foot five, 240, 250 pound guy. Doesn't look like he should fit in with Jacoby Ellsbury, right? Like he's a very different physical specimen. But I think that's one of the things that makes him interesting and why I think the Beltron comparison is maybe the one that uh, is the most apt is it's not that hard to see Jason Hayward having a breakout season in the next couple of years. And if you look at Carlos Beltran before age 25, he was kind of a terrible hitter his first couple of years, and then he improved a slightly by average, and then and then he became like kind of the later Carlos Beltran that we see that was known for his bat and really became kind of an offense-first player. But that wasn't at all what Carlos Beltran was early in his career. He was a speed and defense center fielder who hit 15 home runs a year. <coughs> not that much unlike Jason Hayward now. And so I think uh, maybe the version of Jason Hayward we're going to see over the next decade is not the one we've seen previously. I think Hayward's athleticism has allowed him to, to be a very good major league player, even while his bat has stagnated a little bit. Uh, but, you know, he's going into his age 25 season, right? Like, Jason Hayward is, uh, you know, younger than uh, many of the guys who got Rookie of the Year votes this year. Like, I don't think it, it's at all unreasonable to think that Jason Hayward could take a step or two forward with a bat the next couple of years and become a Carlos Beltran kind of player. And I think, you know, in estimating his next contract, uh, we have to keep that possibility in mind. Is there's the upside here for him to become a, a regular six-win guy if he starts putting up WRC pluses in the 125 to 130 range. I mean, I'm not mistaken, right? This was when, when he was coming up. I feel like in particular there was one maybe spring training where he kept hitting cars during batting practice. Yeah, yeah. And, his power was uh, his calling card, and now it's the biggest question mark about him. And did something happen? He's had some injuries. I mean, is that part of? Do you think why we've seen that drop decline in power? Uh, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, an injury is probably part of a factor, but he hasn't had like a, you know, a hamate bone surgery or something along those lines that we know that saps power for a long period of time and that we can uh, assume that once he recovers from it, it'll come back. I think that's part of why the Braves were uh, reluctant to offer him uh, the kind of contract he was looking for, is when you have a guy this size who's not hitting for power, you wonder why that is. You wonder what's wrong, and it's not necessarily an easy Easy answer to the question. Some people blame Atlanta's hitting coaches. Some people say he's, you know, trying to take too many pitches and he's too passive at the plate, so he's just not hitting pitches that he could drive over the fence. Uh, I don't think anyone really has the answer. And I guess just with regard to the Hayward-Miller trade as a whole, what, what do you think was Atlanta's impetus for doing this now as opposed to maybe at midseason? And sort of part of that question is would Hayward, would he have been more valuable to other teams at midseason? Yeah, I think this is one of the things that we've seen in baseball that, you know, uh, historically, position players uh, return more value in the offseason and pitchers return more value at the trade deadline. Um, for whatever reason, uh, I think position players tend to be harder to move as a premium uh, rental in in the, during the season because especially if you have like a corner outfielder or something, uh, you don't you're not guaranteed that there's going to be a team. Uh, in the mix, in the running, say one of the 15 contenders or 20 contenders who's buying at the trade deadline, who has a hole at that position and has the kinds of players you're going to want. Uh, there are more teams who are willing to buy a kind of young position player in the offseason and say, you know what, maybe we're not even trying to win this year, we just want to get his exclusive negotiating rights, or, you know, we we're, we think we're going to win, but we're not really sure, but we're going to take a shot at it because we think this guy could be part of the core for our team long term, where at the deadline, everyone needs a pitcher. Like, there's no team that goes into the trade deadline not needing a pitcher. So you have this really large market of buyers for pitching at the trade deadline that doesn't necessarily exist if you're trying to trade a shortstop or a third baseman or a right fielder, 
So I think historically, teams look to move their position players uh, in the final year of their contract, the winter before they hit free agency. Where with a pitcher, you say, you know, if he gives me three good months, I can probably extract an even higher price at the trade deadline. Right. Uh, well, that's that's a, a quite a bit about uh, Atlanta and Jason Hayward, and I guess the Cardinals to some degree. Uh, uh, let's let's stop that. There is we're already twenty minutes in. We have not talked about Russell Martin at all, or Tommy Lastella. Which I know you're well, that's sad about. Right. Yes, with with regard to that. Well, I'm not, I don't know if I'm upset about it. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate, I suppose, that he will not get. Uh, he won't. He probably will not get starting st- many starts uh, in Chicago, at least. Uh, I, I mean, what is he an insurance policy for Javier Baez, probably? Or no, is that... I, I think they're they're probably fielding trade offers for Luis Valbuena would be my guess, mm-hmm. and uh, Stella would probably be the kind of Valbuena replacement if they if they trade him. Do we assume? I, I guess I should know this, but uh, do we assume that Tommy Lastella can play third base as well, or would we move Javier Baez over to third base, maybe in that case? Yeah, my guess would be that they would probably just have those two split time. I don't think. Or Chris, Chris Bryant, of course, is also has uh, like a four win projection, I think, with regard. Yeah, you know, as far yeah as but I think uh, Bryant's going to end up in the outfield, is my guess. Okay. Uh, I think long term, Bryant's probably not a third baseman. Yeah. Um, again, it can't be stressed enough. It's not a problem. That the Chicago Cubs have so many like shortstop and third base yeah, prospects. Right. You, you have too many, the, ta- too many talented players. You move them around. Right. Or you they're, them. Yeah. Right. They're good. I mean, they put Arizmendi yeah. uh, Alcantara in center field, right. where by all accounts he's going to be at least an average center fielder. That's not an issue. That's not an issue. Yep. Your talent plays. Yep. Talent yeah. plays. Uh, uh, let's see. This is the damn Cubs. No. No. Russell. Russell Martin. Uh, yeah, he's not a Cub. He's not a Cub. Uh, never has been, to the best of my knowledge. Yeah, he, he almost was. Cubs tried for him. Uh, well, almost, okay. Yeah. He's now a Blue Jay. He is. Uh, there does seem to be, because Russell Martin is how, what, how old right now? Uh, 32. 32. And they signed him for five years. Correct. Right. And so you, um, obviously, uh, with regard to catchers, uh, age, Age what now? I don't necessarily know if this is important. I would love to love to hear this, but it, age is a concern that people express about catchers because uh, catching is uh, labor intensive, and of course Martin specifically has been doing it for some time. Um, and in I think that I don't know if he possessed all these skills as a younger player, uh, but um, offensively he was fantastic last year, um, and I believe that he. Uh, Generally receives very high marks as a uh, as a pitch framer as well. Yeah, I mean I think Martin is you know uh, a very good catcher, especially defensively. He's a premium defender uh, with a pretty good bat. Um, people are concerned about catcher aging curves, but probably overly so. I think we've published a few things on the site over the last couple of years that show that uh, I think one thing that I wrote was called "Catcher Aging is Not a Cliff." Uh, it's essentially the same slow decline that we see at every other position where, you know, if you're good the year before, you're probably not going to just automatically suck overnight. Some guys will, but it's unusual and shouldn't be expected. Uh, in general, your, your skills atrophy, uh, in a somewhat linear pattern, not necessarily precisely linear, but close to it, uh, to where if we think Russell Martin is a three or four win player now, he's probably going to be a two to three win player in a couple of years and maybe a one to one and a half win player by the end of the contract. Uh, especially if you include kind of the the value of pitch framing, which tends to age pretty well and isn't something that goes away as your physical body wears down. I think the one thing we see with catchers is they just can't play as much. Uh, and so if you're a guy like Martin, who's a you know very strong defender, 
his value in in that is not going to be um, picked up if he has to spend some time at designated hitter. So it's not going to be as easy for you to look at him and like say maybe a guy like Brian McCann and say, okay, well he's a really good hitter. When we move him to first base in a couple of years, he'll still be a really good hitter. With Martin, you basically need him to be that behind the plate to be a, a valuable player unless you think he can convert to you know third base or something. Uh, this is a naive question, but the basic one and one to which people want to know the answer is it, uh, does the contract make sense? The contract the Blue Jays gave him? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I guessed 575 in my free agent predictions. This is $8 million higher, which, you know, counts to a couple million dollars a year or more. Uh, kind of a rounding error in today's baseball economy. It's basically the kind of money I thought he would get. Um, I think if you kind of include any kind of, um, positive, valuation for framing uh it seems to be fairly easy to see martin as a four-win player uh and i think if we look at what like, four-win players in other positions get jacoby ellsbury got 150 million dollars last year shinsu Chu's a three-win player got 140 million uh you know 80 million dollars for a four-win player in today's day and age is a pretty good deal even for an aging guy who might not be able to play you know 120 games behind the plate for that much longer i did see some uh some reactions to this deal in particular on uh, social media, social media website, twitter.com. Uh, and there was, there, there were some people who were dismissing it as madness. Yep. Uh, is, does that have to do, uh, I don't know, does that have to do with the amount of money that he'll get paid in what his age 37 season? 36. Yeah. 36. Uh, there seemed to be some concern about that. Um, is that, <coughs> you know, how, how much, I guess, how much should the Blue Jays be concerned about that? Well, I think the end of the contract is going to be bad. I mean, you know, they've backloaded the deal, so it's going to be like $20 million in the last couple of years of the contract. He's not going to be worth $20 million by the end of this deal. So you're basically accepting that there's going to be dead money at the end of the contract, and you're hoping you get enough value up front in order to make the contract worth it. I think if you're the Blue Jays, you don't really have a choice, right? You have Jose Batista for a couple more years, and Edwin Encarnacion for a couple more years. Um, Mark Burley is, what, 38, 39, something like that. Rory Dickey is pushing 40. Uh, this is not a young team. You know, they have some, you know, young pieces. Uh, you know, Marcus Stroman's a nice piece, and, uh, you know, there, there's some talent in the system. But this is an old team, and this, these guys are not going to be uh, contenders for much longer with this group of players. And so unless you're going to trade Batista and Encarnacion and Burley and Dickey and kind of the core of your team, uh, you got to upgrade. you got to make a run at this division and try to make the playoffs. And so, you know, I think there probably wasn't any uh, better way to spend $80 million this winter than on Russell Martin. Uh, maybe Chase Headley. I think you could argue for him instead. But uh, I think Martin is going to be one of the better signings of the winner for the money the Blue Jays spent. Right. Uh, you you would say with regard to Chase Headley, uh, we we can maybe just segue for a moment. Uh, you would say with regard to Chase Headley that he is what the best bargain in the free <coughs> market right now. Potentially, yeah. I mean, you know, certainly. If other teams see it the same way I do and he gets bid up to, you know, 90 million over six years, I would no longer say it was a tremendous bargain. But if he goes for four years and 60 million, like I expected, or even less, uh, I think Jim Bowden threw out 327, uh, as his predicted. Uh, if, if Headley went for anything in that range, he would be a massive steal. Just, uh, how much do you think Chase, Chase Headley wants? Uh, my guess is the goal would be 575, uh, and he'll, I think he'll settle for 460, but I think they would like to get a fifth year. Uh, I think when you look at Headley, um, the argument is essentially going to be that he's not that different than Pablo Sandoval. Sandoval's gonna sign first, uh, probably for somewhere between 90 and 110 million for five or six years, uh, depending on how aggressive the bidding gets at the end. And then the counter argument for Headley's group will be, you know, 
they're basically the same player. Uh, Sandoval has a little more power. Headley has a little more defense. Uh, Headley's a little older, so he's going to get a little less money. Um, but, you know, maybe the gap doesn't need to be half as much if Sandoval goes for 110 and Headley's sitting at 55. I mean, they could argue that Headley is not half the player that Sandoval is. Um, so my, my guess is they're going to try and push closer to 75 to 80 million. I don't know that they'll get there, but I think they probably have a decent case. If, um, if Headley's value is suppressed perhaps relative to his actual worth, what he can produce, what we expect him to produce in terms of wins, do you think that that is, uh, due more in part to playing in Petco where his raw numbers are suppressed or just playing in San Diego, which is a poor team or some combination of the two? Yeah, I mean, that, those things certainly don't help. Uh, but I think people can adjust for parks to some degree. I mean, Nelson Cruz only got $8 million last year despite pretty good superficial numbers because he was coming out of Texas and people were kind of concerned about how he was going to hit elsewhere. I think people generally understand park factors. I think maybe a more, uh, maybe the bigger variable would be that his, his decline significantly over the last couple of years in terms of offensive performance. I think he had a 102 WRC plus last year, which is slightly above average. Uh, doesn't look anything like the, or at least for the last couple of years, the breakout star he was three years ago. And I think people are not very good at ignoring trends. I think this is one of the things that we see in, with Jason Hayward. You know, uh, very good early on, has not been maybe less good at the plate lately. Uh, and people will put too much emphasis on the most recent year, the most recent two years, and say, you know, this is what he is right now. Ignoring the longer track record, I think people are probably just discounting Headley's 2012, 11, whatever monster yeah, season that was. Uh, you know, when he was almost the MVP of the National League, uh, it's ancient history in people's minds, and they say, okay, well, now he's just an average hitter, uh, despite the fact that that's still useful information. The fact that Chase Headley could do that in Petco Park uh, informs us about some abilities that he does have uh, somewhere in there, even if they didn't show up last year. And I think, you know, you see his performance getting out of Yankee Stadium or getting out of uh, Petco Park and in Yankee Stadium in the second half of the year uh, lends some credence to the fact that if he changes ballparks and he goes into a more uh, offensive-friendly environment, he could really thrive above and beyond what park factors might suggest. Okay. Hey, that's a half hour. It's more a little more than a half hour. Yeah. I think you have fulfilled your obligation, I, unless oh. there's something we've really ignored. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, Zach Duke signed, but that doesn't seem podcast-worthy. No, in fact, uh, Zach Duke... Uh, there were some people who thought that we should have done a crowdsourcing form. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, maybe, maybe we should have, given that he got $15 million. And do we crowdsource Chris, Chris Capuano? He's not getting $15 million. Well, I'm, yeah. That was uh, due to my own personal biases. You don't like relievers. Uh, I don't care for, well, I mean. I, I mean, how many did you crowdsource? Miller, Robertson? I think I did five. Gregerson? Five. Soriano? Who yeah. else? I don't, uh. You don't know. You don't care enough to remember. I, yeah, I, I've already. <laughs> uh, Uahara, maybe. Oh yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah. yeah no, so basically, just, basically, you just did the ones that might close. Like the the situational setup guys got completely ignored. How much did Zach Duke get? Get, get say it again. Fifteen million over three years. He got fifteen million dollars. Yeah. Zach wow. Duke uh, was very good last year. Yeah, he, he was. Did, he, dro- he dropped his arm slot. Uh, added a couple new pitches. Added some velocity. Uh, I think, you know, he was basically the equivalent of Andrew Miller last year. The problem is, you know, it's the first time he's ever done it. So now we've seen Zach Duke be amazing for 50 innings, where we've seen, you know, other pitchers be amazing longer. So the White Sox are definitely betting on the recent performance being the real one. Well, I want to say congratulations, Zach Duke. 
<clears throat> yeah, I mean, fifteen million dollars. Good for him. Good for you, man. Invite us out to dinner. Especially since he uh, he was on those kind of those miserable uh, mid aughts Pirates teams. He was on those miserable mid aughts Pirates teams. Yeah, and so he deserves. I mean, I guess he was part of the problem. Yeah, right. Zach Duke pitching was part of the reason they were miserable. <laughs> but I think he he had some decent seasons in there. Uh, that and he probably you know he was probably the best player on some of those teams. Uh, that is the definition of damning with faint praise. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. what that is. That's what it looks like right there. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, good job. Good job, Dave Cameron. Thank you very much. Thank you. That is Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs and Cars and Sestouli. He's been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>